Isaiah 56. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you for the, the privilege and the opportunity to read and to study your word this evening. How we pray that you will grant us wisdom and understanding through the power of your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that you will get everything out of our way. Not what may be around us as much as what is inside of us to keep us from hearing what you have to say. But Lord, just take all those distractions from us right now. It may be that we just need to say, Lord, forgive us of our sins committed, Lord, this week. And we just, we just want to be clear with what we hear tonight. So bless us and anoint us and fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. That we may begin this moment to hear your voice and to respond, Lord God, to your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Isaiah 56, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Throughout the last 55 chapters of this amazing prophecy of Isaiah, we have seen how powerfully prophetic themes have dominated this book. In hopes of rightly dividing the book of Isaiah, I have wanted to stimulate a greater interest in prophecy as it affects us in our day and time without losing sight of the practical nature of its spiritual lessons to us. In essence, it is important to state that the great objective of prophetic ministry is not simply to occupy people with coming events, but in so doing, to impress the truths of the future upon the conscience so as to enable God's people to live now in the light of the predicted future. As it was with ancient Israel, so it is to be with us in this present church age. Now what must be guarded against is, is for people to have only a, an intellectual interest in prophecy without the interest in right living. And if you didn't get that, I want to say it again. What must be guarded against is for people to have an into, only an intellectual interest in prophecy without the interest in right living. Now, messages about prophecy are important. And any servant of Christ who faithfully presents the prophetic parts of the Word will discover that fewer professed Christians would be lost to the truth if redeemed pastors, teachers, and preachers gave more attention to the prophetic Word. The reason I say this is that, that some people go into aberrant religious systems because, they are des uh, because of their desire to know the, the future. Case in point, years ago, and probably still today, the radio program Voice of Prophecy appealed to so many who, people who heard it over the, over the airwaves, yet, yet those people who listened to it did not know that it was the radio ministry of the Seventh-day Adventists. And, and, and the, the, the themes, and I used to listen to it too, I, you know, it was incredible, you know, they, they wanted to talk about the future, they wanted to talk about prophetic things. And, 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 and it catches your ear, it catches your attention. But even to this day, prophecy conferences, not too long ago, a couple of months ago, I think, or a few months ago, there were flyers being sent to homes, there were posters here and there, very colorful posters. You see Jesus, and it talks about the coming of Jesus Christ and all. And it's very attractive, and they're going to have a conference in the Civic Center or, or, or have it in all the major cities and Civic Centers, arenas and, and whatnot. The mailers, the posters sent out, giving no indication, by the way, giving no indication as to the sponsors of these events. Eventually, the attendees are encouraged to attend Seventh-day Adventist Bible courses. That's what happens. Because it's Seventh-day Adventist uh, focused. 
Uh, if you didn't know, Seventh-day Adventists is uh, somewhat of an aberrant teaching of Christianity. We hold to a very legalistic standard. While there are a lot of things that uh, they have right in the scriptures, they have a lot of other things that are very questionable. Now, if I mention Jehovah's Witnesses, you will say, well, that's pretty aberrant, isn't it? Because it's, a, it's considered a cult. But Jehovah's Witnesses work on the same principle. They work on the principle of hidden agenda. They hide their real views until little by little, hearers listen to their great program for the future without knowing biblically that their views are skewed, to say the least, and heretical, to say the worst. And I think most of us have have run into that uh, kind of situation. When I have talked to believers who have studied the Word of God and stay in the Word of God, when they confront or be, are confronted by Jehovah's Witnesses, they're, they're ready with, with, with Scripture because they stay in God's Word. That's, that's the whole point of, of what I'm saying here at the beginning of this particular study. Because it is my conviction that the best response to anyone who is only fascinated about the future... See, I want to get off the issue of, of the cults thing. That's for another time. I'm just saying how they use prophecy to attract people. But it's my conviction that the best response to anyone who is only fascinated about the future, in particular, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, is to tell them and then to ask them, I'm glad to know that you hold to the second coming. I hold that too. But does it hold you? That's the question. Does the second coming hold you? In other words, it is one thing to hold to the second coming. It is quite another thing to be held by it. Are you held by the second coming of Christ? Does it have that effect in your heart? That when you know that Jesus Christ is coming soon, that he's coming again, that you're living because you know that he's coming soon. You're living right. You're living godly in this present age. That's the point of what I'm saying here. It isn't just be fascinated by the things that we talk about when we talk about the rapture of the church or, or the fact that so much prophecy is being fulfilled in our day and time. We've been hearing about that for 30 some years. In, 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 in recent, I say recent years. But the fact of the matter is, does that encourage you then to live and to walk according to the will of God? And to walk according to His Word? Because listen to this. And this is something you want to give to people. First John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. You see, future. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, when Jesus Christ is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And then notice verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. You see that connection to the future? You see that connection to the things of prophecy? It isn't just knowing all about prophecy. I was reading a story by uh, H.A. Ironside today about somebody who was uh, going to all these prophetic uh, 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 conferences and all, and people in that particular town looked at him and said, you know, when you, if you knew that man, you'd realize he was, he's a crooked man. He's an evil, wicked man. But he loves to hear about prophecy. That's the way some people are. You know, they just are, have that interest about the future, but they don't have any interest in, in doing what the, Lord of, uh, what, what the Word of God says and living by the Word of God, you see. So the problem has been that too many people have wanted to know all about the horns of Daniel <laughs> and the beasts of Revelation, but they don't want anyone to probe their consciences. And that, folks, is something we need to be able to stand securely in. That when the light of the glory of Jesus Christ shines on us, we can say, I stand because Christ has changed my life and I will live according to His will and purpose. The lesson in the following chapters in Isaiah is this lesson. Right living in the light of eternity. Right living in the light of eternity. You see, the prophet points out the importance of living living in a godly way in the then present, what was then present then. And also that in the future, it is as the nations learn to seek after righteousness, that the blessing of the kingdom will be theirs. 
So there's some word being spoken directly to Israel. There's word being spoken to Gentiles. That's been happening in the last few chapters. It's happening still. Look at verse 1 again. Thus saith the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come. Do you see the connection of what I've said so far? Keep justice. In other words, guard justice. Do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come. Something's going to happen, so are you walking right? Are you living right? And then he says, in my righteousness to be revealed. First of all, understand that God is telling the people to live rightly or correctly because the point where they will enter eternity is right around the corner. You see, it isn't so much just to say, you know, I've got this focal point in the future because that's when Jesus is coming. We don't know the day or the hour, do we? But we have some some sense of a focal point. The fact of the matter is, we could be taken home tonight. We can be gone tonight. And will we then meet our Maker and our Creator? Are we ready for Him? That's the idea here. Eternity is right around the corner all the time. It is right around the corner right now for us. And this was a prophetic word directed to the Lord's discouraged people who had slacked off in their obedience and righteousness. And the Lord is saying to them, live now in the light of then. Live now in the light of then, what is to come. Guard and observe justice and righteousness for deliverance is near and God's judgment and righteousness will be uncovered for all to see. I mean, even John the Baptist used this idea and principle in his preaching. Turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 3 and look at verses 8 through 14. It's a, it's a good long passage here, but, but we need to see the whole context of what he says. Luke 3 verse 8 says, Therefore, and he's speaking to the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jews. He says, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to, uh, to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has one. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. In other words, keep justice and do righteousness. Same principle. Simply, John was telling the people that if their hearts were truly sorry over their sin, then their actions should match their hearts. Their actions should match their hearts. The heart has to be correct, in other words. It isn't just the outward things that we do. It is motivated by what we have done inside. What has been done in us. What has taken place in us. That change of heart. If we look at verse 2, it says, Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Now, something's brought up in this second uh, second verse. Something that mentions the Sabbath here. It's important to remember that the nation of Israel had gone into captivity because she had disobeyed God's law, particularly the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment found in Exodus 20 verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This commandment was a special sign between the Lord and the Jews. Now follow me very carefully here. This commandment was a special sign, covenant, between the Lord and the Jews. And interestingly enough, and I just want you to keep this thought in mind, I'm going to come back to it in a moment. But interestingly enough, one never given to the Gentiles. Listen carefully. If you go back to Exodus 31, and you look at verses 12 through 17, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. 
that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you or sets you apart. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Do you see the emphasis? Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. Do you notice where the, fo- the focus was? The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, the Sabbath marked Israel as God's people. The Sabbath marked Israel as God's people. It was also a test of the nation's commitment to God. Failure to keep it, failure to keep it holy, would result in death. That's what we just read. Isn't that a powerful statement about the Sabbath? Those who did not keep it, those who would work on the Sabbath, would be put to death. Whoa. Yet the Jews would be rebuked for the careless way they treated the Sabbath during their wanderings in the wilderness and when they lived in the land. And both the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah commented on that in their prophecies concerning the captivity of Israel. Even after they returned to the land after the captivity, they continued to violate the Sabbath. In other words, at first, you know, there was that shock. Wow, somebody's going to die if they work on the Sabbath. As soon as somebody died. But then people kept trying it and trying it. God God took a step back. Well, wait a minute. People aren't dying anymore. Oh well, all of a sudden the Sabbath isn't being observed as closely as it had at one time. Remember now throughout all of history how man is about God's law. If they are not spiritually in tune with God, they will just kind of let things go. They try it and they say, well, nobody's dying here. Folks, it began at the beginning of the church too. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. When they were lying to the Holy Spirit. They had to carry them off. Those were the first two funerals of the church. But then what happened? Little by little, you know, the fear went out. With it, God stepped back. And where did it all end up? We have those problems today. They violated the Sabbath. And in Nehemiah chapter 13, and I'm only going to give you two verses here, but you need to read all of chapter 13 because it says here, Nehemiah is speaking about that situation. He says, after they have returned into the land of Israel and into the city of Jerusalem in particular, he says, then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. They went right back to defiling the day that was holy to the Lord, to them, because it was their covenant with God. I had mentioned earlier that the the commandment for the Sabbath was not given to the Gentiles per se. Of the Ten Commandments, it is the only commandment not repeated for the church after the day of Pentecost. The only commandment not repeated in the church or for the church. As a matter of fact, in Acts 20, verse 7, it says, Now the first day of the week, there was a significance to that first day of the week. The first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them, continued his message until midnight. The first day of the week, Sunday. Not Saturday, not the last day of the week, which is the Sabbath. There was something new here happening with the church in the day that they, that, they, uh, that they celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. They did it on the first day of the week. 
Paul even comments on that in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week. Let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. First day of the week, the offerings taken in the church. So in the early church, the new Gentile believers were not commanded to keep the Sabbath. And, and, and think about this. You, you, you may be a little confused about that because all the time we think, well, Sundays are our Sabbath. You know, no, there's a Sabbath. That's, that's Saturday. And then there's the first day of the week. But this is what the, the Gentile believers were commanded to do. Listen, because in Acts 21, verse 25, it says, But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols. Notice this list. From blood from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Nowhere does it say that they are to keep the Sabbath. Okay, so, how then is the Sabbath defiled or polluted then? It is defiled when people don't take time to spend with the Lord. We can say that that is the way it is for, for Israel. It is the same way it is for us. We, def- we defile the day that is holy for us. When we don't take time to, rest, to spend with the Lord. And then it is polluted when people don't take time to rest from their labors. Because God did give us a Sabbath day rest. It is a rest of our labors. And uh, more than just being spiritual and something that's important from the spiritual standpoint, it's important for the physical and the emotional to take rest. To take that day. I mean, I speak generally, of course, because in reality we are free to worship the Lord any day. Here we are on a Wednesday night. What did we do tonight? We worship the Lord. And we can do it tomorrow morning when we wake up. We can do it tomorrow night if, at our home Bible studies. Or we can do it, you know, when, whatever night we meet. We can do it in our office. You do it in the shower. Of course, none of us hear you. But God does. And He rejoices when you're rejoicing in Him. It might not sound all that good, but, you know, he hears you. And he's, he's gracious as all get out. So, you know, he'll accept all those funky notes that you all sing. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> well, maybe not, but anyway. <laughs> but we're blessed to have a day to worship him collectively. We're blessed to have a day when we can gather together in the, in the name of Jesus Christ. And as we, as we move on from this particular point, the sense is then that the, the, even the Gentiles are now being asked to keep the Sabbath. Let's go on. That's why I brought all that up. There's no commandment for the Gentiles to keep the Sabbath. But right now, in this particular passage, there's the sense that even Gentiles are now being asked to keep the Sabbath. Notice where it is. Verse 3 of Isaiah 56, by the way. Do not let the son of the foreigner, who has joined himself to the Lord, speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. What a sad thing for a eunuch to have to say that. Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, And choose what pleases me. And hold fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name. Better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Wow. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord. And I want you to notice what it says. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast My covenant, even them I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on My altar, for My house shall be called a house of prayer. For all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel. Says yet I will gather to him. Others beside those who are gathered to him. 
God calls the very people that he prohibited from entering his covenant nation, foreigners and eunuchs. By the way, there's a passage of scripture, Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 and 2. Let me share that with you first. Because here in Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 and 2, it says, He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation, that's what a eunuch is, one who has had that happen to him. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Leviticus 21 also mentions those who have any kind of physical defect. So, this is a, definitely a physical defect. But then it says in verse 2, one of, the, uh, one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Let me say that that word illegitimate right here is, is a very powerful word in the Hebrew because it not only means to, you know, not to be born legitimately, Honestly, it, it, it means, and it has the, uh, the more full understanding that it is talking about someone who is born of a foreigner or of mixed relations. So that is then a foreigner. So you have the eunuch and the foreigner mentioned here in this particular passage, not allowed to enter into the assembly of the Lord. So God calls the very people that he prohibited from entering his covenant nation, foreigners and eunuchs, to now enter in. That is what the passage reads that we just finished reading. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Now they could turn to Deuteronomy 23 and say, you see, we've been prohibited from coming. And the Lord is saying, don't, don't let any of them say that, nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree, as if to say, you know, I can't come in because I'm uh, defected, or defective, I should say. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who desire the God of Israel, who desire to serve and who desire to hold to the things of God, and to the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath holds fast my covenant. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain. I want them to come. God is not contradicting himself, by the way. God is not contradicting himself. I'll get to that in just a moment. But here in Isaiah 56, going back to Isaiah 56, we find another picture of God's amazing grace. This is what he is showing to us here. He is showing to us His amazing, merciful grace. It was the same grace that was applied to a eunuch from Ethiopia. You talk about somebody that was both a eunuch and a foreigner. That was all in one person. In Acts chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, I won't give you the whole story, but uh, you know, Philip is called alongside of this eunuch's uh, uh, carriage or, or, or chariot, whatever it is, uh, GTO or whatever. But anyway, he calls, and he comes and he's running right alongside, you know, and, and he says, "What are you reading?" You know, and uh, the guy tells him, and so so the eunuch answered in Philip, and he said, "I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this uh, of himself or of some other man?" He's reading Isaiah, by the way. And then Philip opened his mouth and began, uh, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, and see, by the way, that's the key. Is Jesus? That's the key to understanding what we're reading here in Isaiah 56, is the Messiah. So he's preaching Jesus to him. And now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart. Man, I tell you what, I would underline that in your Bible. That is the key statement to this eunuch. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now that, that, that goes beyond just reading a tract that says, pray this prayer and you'll be saved. It says, listen, if you believe with all your heart, not just read this thing, if you believe, and he says, I believe, in other words, he is saying, I Truly believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
And so he commanded the chariot to, be, to, to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized them. That's that amazing grace that we're being spoken of here in Isaiah 56. Why? Because in Isaiah 55, the invitation is still for today. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come. Everyone. Jew and Gentile, everyone who thirsts, come. This applies to sinners today, but it will apply in a special way when Israel enters her kingdom. What are we talking about? We're talking about prophecy. We're talking about a far fulfillment, a fulfillment that is yet to come. When Israel enters into its kingdom, who's going to be there? All who believe in whom? Messiah. And so, listen. Temple services are going to be restored. Have they been restored yet? No, but they will be because the Bible says they will. The Sabbath is once again a part of Jewish worship. In the temple. Jews still, uh, you know, they still celebrate the Sabbath, but not in the temple. What temple is this? This is the temple of the Lord. This goes way beyond even the temple that is going to be constructed in the near future that some Jews are already preparing for in Israel today, in Jerusalem today. We have been to the Temple Institute, those who have been to Israel can tell you. They're seeing all of the vessels being made. They're they're in there, most of them, if not all of them, are almost all finished. We're just waiting. There are a few problems. The Temple Mount is still being held by uh, foreigners, as it were. Still being held by the uh, Muslims who run the two major mosques that are on the Temple Mount. Interestingly enough, in November, when we were there in Israel... We were allowed to go back onto the Temple Mount when we weren't allowed before to go on. So things have been happening. It goes on and off, though, you know, so we don't know when the, the major change is going to happen. Of course, it's a powder keg. It could light a tremendous fire, a tremendous war if, if, if the Israelis and the Arabs clash there, because that's what they would clash over. But the temple is going to be built. God knows when and how. And we just have to trust. But the prophet goes on to show that no one needs to fail of the coming blessings if they are sincere in turning to God. That, that is why the first part of this section essentially says, don't say that. That's why it's saying to the foreigner and to the eunuch, don't say that, that you've been separated from, from us or from God. Don't say that. I, I love that about the Lord. Because how many people today say, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not worthy. You know, the, the only response to that is, who is? Who in this room is worthy? Not one of us is worthy. Because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The Lord has provided a way, the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he's given. So that no one can say any longer as as those foreigners and eunuchs, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Here I am a dry tree. (laughs) No, God has a blessing for you. God has a blessing for the the meek and the hurt and the lame. The one who has been overladen with his own sin. As if to say in his own life, you know, who, who could ever forgive me? I know one who can. I know one who can and will if you'll trust him. His name is Jesus. Folks, we need to tell people about Jesus. I don't know what the church is doing today. I mean, there's a lot of things going on. I mean, we're talking about all kinds of things, you know, all kinds of programs. All kind. I tell you, the simple thing is people are dying and going to hell because they don't know Jesus Christ. 
And if we know Him, what are we doing with that knowledge? I don't care what, what some people say that we live, you know, we're living in a, in a postmodern society. I tell you what, the gospel doesn't change. Society may change. Philosophies may change. Ways of doing things may change. We are living in a tremendous age of technology. So much has changed, but you know what the simple truth is? People still need Jesus to go to heaven. People still need to trust in the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. People need to repent of their sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ and believe that He died and rose again from the dead. A simple gospel. But we make it so hard. A man thinks that he has to pay. That's the whole thing about Isaiah 55. Who has to pay? The price has already been paid. The invitation is still there. So don't say that. Don't say that, oh, look at, look at poor me. I can't. Well, no, you're poor. You're just like me. But you know what? We're rich in Christ. We're rich in Jesus Christ. And isn't it interesting that eunuchs who would, would in no way have the opportunity to have their own children especially a male child, to pass on their name, are given that opportunity by the Lord. Did you see that? I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. I will give them an everlasting name. I believe that's in verse 5. I don't, I don't want to reveal too much of, of my Resurrection Day message right now but it fits right in with this passage because Jesus says in John 6:37 all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out all that the father gives me will come to me jew gentile foreigner eunuch lame Healthy, rich, poor. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Verse 5, if you look at it one more time, it says, Even to them I will give in my house and within my walls. Look, look at this phrase. One of the most beautiful phrases in the Bible. A place and a name. You see that? Mark that. A place and a name. By the way, it's literally a memorial and a name. Even to them I will give in my house and, in, and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. Remember, they're eunuchs. <laughs> I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. You know, this is an interesting application of this verse. A place and a name. In Hebrew, it's very simple. Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem. This is the name, by the way, of the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem to honor the Jews who died during World War II. Yad Vashem. It's right in our Bible. And it is also offered to the eunuch and the foreigner a place and a name how gracious our God is what a lovely thought in the midst of such ugliness Yad Vashem you know I, I wouldn't consider a lot of places solemn in this world I consider that place the most solemn place in Israel Yad Vashem in the sense of what it represents. A place and a name. A memorial with names of people who died at the hand of a demonic ruler. A place and a name. How do people feel today if, if they sense themselves so separate from God? That's why God says to the foreigner, and to the eunuch, I'll give you a place and a name. I give you Yad Vashem. 
You see, while, they, while giving the eunuchs a place and a name in God's house contradicted the command of Leviticus 21, verses 18 through 20, which you can read yourself, Leviticus 21, 18 verse 20, through verse 20. But under a coming new covenant, you see, and here's, here again is the key, under a new covenant there is a higher principle at work than the shadows of the Levitical law. There is a higher principle at work. Go back to verses 6 through 8. Also the son of the, <coughs> excuse me, also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord. Notice, to serve him, do you see that? And to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. I want you to notice that that is saying, that, that is not spectator sport here. That's not just finding a place to be a spectator. Is one who is, is coming to serve the Lord, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. My question to you tonight is, do you love the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that's the name that it's talking about. Do you love the name of the Lord? Do you love the name so much that you, want you live to, that you want to live your life so much so that it reflects the mercy and grace and, and truth of Jesus Christ? That you'll do nothing to shame that precious name. Do you love the name of the Lord? Everyone, it says, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. That's a different time altogether than what we've seen so far. Because of a new covenant, because of the blood of Christ. It goes on, For my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who, get, who gathers the outcasts of Israel. And folks, I tell you what, I, I, I know this sounds funny, but I love that word, outcasts. You know why? Because in reality, most of us, if not all of us, were outcasts. Which one of us was born into the kingdom of God? Straight in. With a free pass. The Bible says not one. Not one. All of us were outcasts. That's even my bowling team name. The outcasts. We're not very good. We're at the bottom of the book. But it's okay. We love Jesus. That's all that matters. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. God's people had fallen into the idea that they were accepted by God no matter what. And that others were rejected by him no matter what. But here the Lord makes it clear that even when a foreigner or a eunuch follow hard after God and come to him in obedience, he will receive them. And then the Lord wanted His house, His temple, to be a house of prayer, not only for the Jewish people to worship Him, but to be a house of prayer and worship for all nations. You see here, once again, it goes beyond the Levitical law because of the new covenant established by the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. The violation of this principle, you see, stirred the very heart of Jesus himself. And, and, and if, you'll, if you'll look at Matthew 21 for just a moment, very quickly here. Matthew 21, verses 12 to 13. We are told that Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. By the way, if you do a good study of this, you realize that this was in the outer courts. What are the outer courts? where the Gentiles were, the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus went into the temple of God and, and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Folks, it was in the outer courts that he said this. Where the Gentiles could come as close as they could come to the Holy of Holies. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he made a way for every Jew and every Gentile to come to him because the veil of that, of that temple where the Holy of Holies, the holiest place was, was torn in two from top to bottom. The Bible tells us this. As if God just took with his two hands that curtain, which was about, could have been close to two feet thick. 
And he tore it like a phone book and ripped it right in half because he made a way for not only Jews but Gentiles to come into the holy place. But he calls it a house of prayer. And a house of prayer is a house of prayer. It is a house of worship. It is a house of communion with God. Let's not forget that. You know, our idea here is not for us to worship this place. It's not a place to be worshipped. We're thankful for it. We're thankful that God has given us this place, but we don't worship this place. We come into this place to bring our voices, our hearts, and our, and our, and our hands together and worship the Lord who saved us. Worship Him and Him alone. Going back to verse 8, and I still have a little bit of a ways to go here, so let's get flying. But in verse 8 it says, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others beside those who are gathered to him. You see, because of the afflictions of, of the captivity, Israel had become extremely self-focused, believing God only really cared about them, and the rest of the nations didn't matter. But the Lord wanted to expand the vision of Israel beyond her own borders. So they would know that God loved the perishing world and wanted them to love the perishing also. Isn't that some sense of what we received when we came to Christ? Is that we were lost? You know, we, we realized, you know, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but we are strong. We are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. This is our testimony, folks. But once we come to the knowledge of Christ's salvation, our hearts turn toward those who have been where we've been, lost in their sins, lost without hope. And Israel was, was, you know, God wanted them to have his heart for the lost. And they just focused on themselves. We've suffered so much, and they have. But God wanted to open their eyes, others, just like he says there, others, besides those who are gathered. He'll, he'll gather. And then a new section begins in verses 9 through 12. And let's read that. That's the last part of this. All you beasts of the field come to devour. We can tell this is a totally different section because we've been blessed by, you know, the opening of God's heart to his temple. And now, oh, all you beasts of the field come to devour. <laughs> all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They're all ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. This is wonderful language, isn't it? They cannot bark. Sleeping. And by the way, in the word sleeping there, there's the sense of sleeping and dreaming. That's the fullness of that word. Sleeping and dreaming. Lying down, loving to slumber. <laughs> Be careful if you love to slumber. I've talked to people, I just love to sleep. How long do you sleep? All the time. Sometimes I wonder about here. But anyway, that's a possible. Yes, they are greedy dogs. Hey, you ever thought about your dog being greedy? They are, you know. Territorial. Uh, so, you know, the Bible is true, man. It's true stuff here. Okay. Which never have enough. I've got a dog that every time I walk to, I walk to the kitchen, he thinks I'm going to give him a biscuit. Every time. There's not a time he says, oh, no, I don't need one now. No, he comes with me. <laughs> and he goes right over to where the biscuits are. And there's times when I just tell him, no, man, you're too fat. I'll eat them right now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but that's the way dogs are. They just, he just thinks that the kitchen is his. and you know. Well, anyway, I'm spending too much time on my dog. Uh, 
They never have enough. And then he says, and they are shepherds. They are shepherds who cannot understand. He's speaking about the leadership, by the way, of Israel. They're shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his own gain, from his own territory. Come, one says, I will bring wine, and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today, and much more abundant. Hmm. So a series of indictments are now presented by the prophet Isaiah against the disobedient in the nation. And the indictments begin with the blind leaders of God's people. He invites the beasts of the field to a great feast. Uh, he, uh, he, in essence, is calling pagan nations to devour his people. It has to happen, and it does. It has to be understood that the remnant that came out of captivity did not obey the admonition given in verse 1. What was the admonition? Keep justice and do righteousness. They didn't keep it. And we know that. Because when you read Ezra, and when you read Nehemiah, when you read Haggai, when you read Malachi, you find that they soon forgot God's goodness, and they returned to their old ways. Israel had become spiritually insensitive. Their watchmen, their priests, their religious leaders were blind, they were ignorant, and certainly not doing their job. That's, that, that was all that description. They, they were supposed to keep a, a, an eye out for enemies, and enemy armies, and they were supposed to alert the city of an impending attack. But if the guy in the watchtower is blind, they were all in big trouble. You see anything? I can't see a thing. And even if, if, if there was some alert to be sounded, they were dumb dogs because they couldn't bark. And, and that's, you know, coming from the inside, you see. As for being ignorant, they did not know God's word. They should have, but they didn't. And they didn't perceive or understand the gravity of their situation. So they were slothful and they were drunkards. The religious leaders of Israel. I don't know if I have time to throw this in. How much time do I have, by the way? Ah, well, I have a little time. My father, actually my grandfather, when he came to El Paso from Mexico, back in the very, very, very early 20s, 1920, <laughs> when he came in, in, in that time, he came and he uh, worked really hard to start his own meat market, and he did. He had been a cattle rancher at one time in Mexico and had to give everything up because of the government at that time over there. And they were coming after all the people who had any kind of wealth. And, of course, cattle is wealth. So he sold it all and, and left at night, came to the States, and um, established himself as, as the main meat market in El Paso, uh, in the city market, the old city market. Anyway, uh, he made friends with all of the uh, rabbis and uh, became the... Uh, the main uh, kosher uh, meat market for, for all the Jews in El Paso. And uh, <laughs> I'm only saying this because uh, I've, I've been, the stories have been handed down that there was one particular rabbi who had come, you know, because the rabbi had to come and actually declare the, uh, you know, the, the location kosher, which means clean and all. But he would spend half of his time uh, chasing after the ladies that worked in the back for my grandfather, and the other half sitting in a corner drunk, drinking his Manashevitz wine. Uh, but, I, you know, I, so it didn't change down through the ages that some of them were just having a little problem, you know, with drink. And that's what our, that's what our text tells us. Oh, I'll bring wine. We'll fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. You know, it's interesting that people were very nice to us, uh, the, the, the Jewish families and all. And, well, anyway... Uh, so it's not all of them, but you know, the rabbi, he, yeah, the spiritual leader, <laughs> doing all this stuff. Anyway, the insensitivity can spread, you see. And so they didn't perceive. I want to read from the New Living Translation, verses 10 and 11. Maybe it just kind of clarifies something. It says, For the leaders of my people, the Lord's watchmen, his shepherds, are blind to every danger. They're like silent watchdogs that, that give no warning when danger comes. They love to lie around sleeping and dreaming. And they're as greedy as dogs, never satisfied. They're stupid shepherds, all following their own path. 
all of them intent on personal gain. You know, this picture stands in total contrast to the godly leadership personified by King David as well as King Jesus in Isaiah 55, verses 3 through 5, where it says, Incline your ear and come to me. Here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and the nations who do not know you shall run to you. And the nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. What a contrast. And that's placed here to show you that contrast. The last verse says, Come, one says, I will bring wine and we'll fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. Concerned only with their own pleasure, they fail to consider that judgment will soon come upon them. When it comes right down to it, ministry, when it comes right down to it, ministry is about what you can do for others, making yourself available to be used by God. It's not about yourself. It's not about personal gain. And please understand that if you get caught up in doing ministry because it makes you feel good, you can expect to be disappointed. That's the only reason why you're in ministry, because you want to feel good. I feel good serving the Lord. That's, that's, not, that's not the re- reason to be serving the Lord. I want you just to remember that Jesus didn't die on the cross because it made him feel good. He died on the cross because he loved us more than he loved his own life. You know, that's a hard concept to think about. But he said it himself. But he was so sure of who he was and what he was doing for us and what he was doing and what he was going to do when he rose from the dead. That he was able to say that he could give his life for a friend. But you see, he didn't give his life just for one. He gave his life for all. That's heavy. The concept of ministry, of living right because Christ is coming, I believe is fulfilled in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And we'll, cro- we'll close with this. Therefore, if there is any consolation or comfort in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Those of you who are here to, to hear Gail Irwin do his Jesus-style seminar, remember this. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, he is coming. Are you living right in the light of eternity? In this last part of chapter 56, we see a picture of unprepared leaders of an unprepared people. And we need to ground leaders. We need to ground leaders in the Word of God so as to prepare the church for the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because a prepared leadership is for a prepared and ready church. Right living in the light of eternity. Please stay close to Jesus. Please ask God for the Holy Spirit to have discernment about the things that we hear 
Please read, study, and know God's Word. Don't depend upon others to read this Word for you, to study it for you. You read it. Let it become a part of your life, a part of your heart. The more that you read it, the more that you get into it. And I tell you what, the, the Word of God is a fascinating uh, uh, compilation of, of truth because in reality, because it has been given by the very Spirit of God, it never grows old. That should tell us something. Every time we read it, something new appears. Something new comes out of it that we didn't see before. I don't care how many times you've read it. God is, that's God's Word. It's going to speak to you. And if it didn't speak to you one day, it'll speak to you another day. And if one passage didn't mean a lot to you one day, it's going to mean a lot to you another day. But the only way that that happens is that you stay constantly in God's Word. And then stay in constant prayer. Paul said, pray without ceasing. Because that's communion with God. That's saying, Lord, I tell you what, when we're in constant prayer, when we're in constant prayer and we're faced with certain temptations, certain things in front of us, if we're in constant prayer, we're saying, Lord, I don't look right. Lord, give me the strength. My flesh is weak. I'm, I'm being drawn. Lord, help me. Man, he's, he's going to answer that prayer. But if you say, Lord, you know, stay right where you are. Hold on. I can handle this myself. I'm strong enough. That temptation will suck you in. And the next prayer you have is going to be a lot later when you say, Father, forgive me. I should have trusted you. You know, I want to speak to you in, in reality. I want to speak to you in real terms here. Because the devil's out to deceive us and he's out to change our minds about our Christianity. He's out to try to tell us, you know what, Christianity, just, you know, kind of just, you know, just have conversation with God. Just converse with God. You know, converse. You don't, you don't know everything. You won't know everything. Don't read the scriptures. Don't study the Bible. Just, you know, tell stories. You know, God's a nice guy. He's, that's the emerging church, folks. And whether people want to believe it or not, it's sinister because it's not from the Lord. Drawing us away from the truth of God's word. I know my time's up already, but I'm just telling you this. This is fatherly advice. Love Jesus. Don't ever be drawn away from him. There's a way that seems right to, the man, to, to man. But the way is full of death. It's just death. And Jesus came to give us life. Let's get on to life. Let's latch on to life and the life that comes through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.